morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Monday, May 22nd, we are studying Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. In today's text, John sees a door standing open, and the voice of the risen Christ calls John to come and see what must take place after this. The vision given to John begins in the throne room of God. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Zelwyn Heidi. Pastor Heidi serves as pastor at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. He is also one of the hosts of the podcast, A Word Fitly Spoken. Pastor Heidi, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Glad as always to be with you. Pastor Heidi, we are in the book of Revelation. As we get started in chapter 4 today, just give us your general thoughts on the book as a whole. How should we approach it? Why is it important to us as Christians? The book of Revelation is a great book for Christians to study, even if it seems to be a little bit bizarre and a little bit kind of outlandish in some of the pictures that it presents, because the ultimate message of the book of Revelation is one of victory. It is the victory of Christ over his enemies. It is the victory of his church, even through the midst of her suffering. And it is the victory that can be ours when we hold on to the hope that we have in Jesus. So all of these images are supposed to give us hope and comfort, knowing that Jesus Christ is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and that all things are in his hands. So yeah, I mean, this book really is a great book for us to study, and I'm glad to be going through it today. That's right. You're, you're saying that you're doing some preaching on Revelation in midweek services, so I'm sure that that you've been reading and studying well, so I'm looking forward to the conversation with you today. Uh, we've, we're starting chapter 4, and there's a bit of a transition in the book of Revelation. What have we seen so far in the book? Where are we headed with chapter 4? Well, so far what we've seen is a vision of Christ in glory. That was chapter 1. And after that, we have the seven letters written to each of the seven churches uh, in Asia Minor. And I'm, I know that you've gone through all the detail in that, so we don't need to go into a lot of detail, but talking about their problems, talking about what they're doing well, calling them to overcome, to conquer, all of that sort of thing. And that was dealing with the things that currently are when John wrote the book of Revelation. But now, in the beginning of chapter 4, we are moving to the things which come after this, although we're going to kind of see it's a little bit fuzzy as to the exact time when we, we get into the throne room itself. But this is the vision of everything that is, is coming after the, the letter to the seven churches. And so now, John is beginning to see, you could say the near future, he's beginning to see the things that are happening and this is probably the part of the book where people start to get a little bit nervous, right? <laughs> could be, could be. Although, I think what we're going to read in chapter 4 and then into chapter 5, these are parts where 
we've sung some of these things in the liturgy. And so it's not as scary, perhaps, as when the seals start to get opened in chapter 6. So we're not maybe in the as uncomfortable territory, but we're starting to get there, because we are going to see these absolutely marvelous and awesome, in the full sense of that word, visions of the heavenly throne room. And so, yeah, we're going to start to get maybe a little bit more uncomfortable in terms of what we're seeing, but it is, again, as you said, it's meant for our comfort. This isn't supposed to bring us fear. It is to bring us comfort to know that God is reigning on his throne, and no matter what persecution we may face, John's exiled in Patmos, we can trust in the one who reigns, the one who sits on the heavenly throne. Right. Even if that means that we end up dying for our faith, whatever it may be, you know, this is still meant for our comfort. And I think that's also especially true of this chapter, uh, when we see the worship of God in his heavenly throne room. All right. Well, as you you told me from the outset, I don't know how we're going to get through all this, so we better get started. (laughs) This is Revelation chapter 4. The entire chapter today is what we've got. John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created." That's our text for today. That's Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Uh, Pastor Heidi, reading that, well, there's a lot to talk about. This is fantastic. So let, let's start with just kind of the, the way that John is brought up into the throne room. John looks, he sees this door standing open in heaven, and then there's a voice. It's the one he heard before that says, come on up here. Uh, take us into the, the invitation that John receives to, to come through this open door. Yeah, so up to this point... John has been on earth receiving this vision. I mean, on the island of Patmos, if we want to think in those terms. And it is kind of interesting because throughout the whole book of Revelation, if you pay attention to where John is when he's writing things, sometimes we'll see that he's on earth like he was in the first three chapters. Sometimes we'll see that he's in heaven uh, as in starting in this chapter and I think going on for at least 
four or five, if I remember correctly. I can't remember where he will say that he's on Earth again. At least by chapter 12, he's on, you know, seeing things from the perspective of Earth once more. So what we see here then is John being brought up into heaven in the spirit, as we'll hear in the next chapter or in the next verse, and seeing these things from the perspective of heaven. And I think that that's important for us to consider because when we think about what is happening, so to speak, behind the scenes, you know, the, the, the deeper realities of what is going on, the spiritual realities of what is going on, that, el that helps us to understand what is also happening on earth. And so we see here, first of all, with the invitation of Christ into heaven, uh, this, this invitation to see things from the perspective of God so that we understand what is happening around us to help make sense of everything else. I mean, does that make sense? I think so. So as we've been reading these seven epistles to the seven churches, as you pointed out, there's been some things that have been good in these churches. There's been some things that have been not so good in these churches. So here's what's mm -hmm. happening on earth. And now, well, what's going on from heaven's perspective at this time? I think that's going to be a helpful thing to, to keep in mind. And I think it, it also helps us to, to maybe get some of the, the time here. So mm -hmm. as you pointed out, Jesus says, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. But it seems like the majority of what happens in chapter 4 and even in chapter 5 isn't what's happening after this, but it's what is still what is happening right now as John is seeing it. You've been hearing and, and seeing about things on earth. Here's what's going on in heaven right now. I mean, so the, the after this is still to come past chapter four, past chapter five. Yes. Well, I think, I think the after this still applies here because what we're seeing in chapter four, especially is what is happening kind of all the time, right? This is the worship of God that is happening all the time. And so it is something that is happening. Yes. At the same time that John is receiving the vision, you know, the, the letters, but it's also something that continues, uh, because we're, we're seeing the worship of the angels and the elders and basically the whole heavenly host of God, even though in chapter five, uh, that song, which they are singing changes a little bit. So it, it really is a, a picture of, of, of timelessness. It's a picture of eternity. And I think that's why it can also be included in the, after this. Sure. Okay. And I think that's helpful. Again, as we think about the situation in the churches that John has written to in those previous seven epistles, you know, I mean, they've been experiencing persecution. Not everyone on earth is worshiping the one who created all things. There, there are people, obviously, who are attacking the church. We've talked about the synagogue of Satan, the persecution that's come from those who, who are not true worshipers of the Lord. We've talked about the persecution that comes from the Romans. So there's plenty of people on earth that are not worshiping there's people within the church that are tempted to forsake the worship of the true God. So what's the picture of what's going on in heaven? As you said, not only now, but it's been going on before and will continue to go on. It is the worship of the true God. And uh, this is maybe not—that's the only way I can think to say it. That means that those who are on earth worshiping God right now, they're on the, quote, right side of history, that they are, they are being joined to this heavenly perspective even while they're there on earth. And that does provide great comfort. I think that's— kind I think that's at least part of what you were getting at with this comfort of the heavenly perspective. Well, I mean, I'm thinking in terms of the whole book also with the heavenly perspective. Sure. But knowing that 
that the God is being worshipped in heaven by the whole heavenly host. Although at this point, all we're really seeing are the elders who will talk about the living creatures and also uh, the angels. We don't really see the saints in heaven just yet. Right. But I mean, that doesn't mean that they aren't worshipping him. It just means that they're not part of the picture just yet. But the point is, is that this timeless worship of the living God, the one who lives forever and ever, is something which gives comfort, especially because this timeless worship, as we will see in the next chapter, which is really why you got to take these two chapters together. But you'll see that uh, with what Christ has done and worshiping Christ for uh, his sacrifice, for what, you know, his shedding of his blood and all of these things, it is something that shows, you know, the, the victory of our God and the fact that he has done all of these things for us. But at this point in chapter four, they're worshiping him because of who he is in himself. And we'll talk about that as we move uh, forward in this chapter. All right. So John has been called by Christ to enter this open door into heaven to see what must take place. John is in the spirit in verse two. We saw that similar way of, of speaking back in chapter one when he initially saw Christ. So he's in the spirit again, and now he's called up into heaven. And the first thing he sees is the throne that's there and one seated on the throne. So take us into the, the vision. Just let's go step by step. Well, this is very explicitly referring to Ezekiel. I don't know how you can get around it. It's a, an allusion to the vision of Ezekiel in chapters in Ezekiel 1 and 2, where Ezekiel sees the vision of God seated on the throne, the wheel within a wheel, that all of that. Although the picture is not exactly the same, and maybe we can talk about some of the differences. But the point here is that this throne, which is seat, which stands in heaven, is symbolic of the authority of God, right? He is the one who is seated. He is the one who rules over all things. He is the one who commands all things. And so the fact that he is seated on this throne, as, as uh, in Ezekiel chapters 1 and 2, shows his power over all of his creation. It shows, you know, they are worshiping the king here. And I think that's the first thing that we do want to emphasize here, the fact that he is the one seated. Although notice, just like Ezekiel, John doesn't really say exactly what God looks like. That's right. Yeah. Well, and that, that is what, what is striking is you start to read. Okay. So John's been called up in heaven. He sees the throne. He sees the one seated on the throne. When he starts to describe the one who's seated on the throne, it's very vague. I mean, you just get this, right. he's got the appearance of some precious jewels. And then really, the rest of the vision doesn't talk about the one seated on the throne, but everything that's going on around the one seated on the throne. Right. Which I, I mean, and it's not until, again, this is where you have to take chapter five, it's, it's not until you see the lamb come and, and sit on the throne and take the scrolls, again, we'll hear this in chapter five, that's when you actually start to see more of what's going on on the throne itself. But at this point, when we're, we're thinking about God the Father, you don't really look at him. You don't get to see him, at least not the same way that you, say, see Jesus, and in seeing Jesus, see who God is. So it is something that's very striking about this vision. And as you said, elsewhere in the book of Ezekiel, other places in the Old Testament where you get this throne room vision, uh, Isaiah 6 would be another one that comes to my mind, you never really quite see the one seated on the throne. You see all the things around him, so that you know the one seated on the throne, that's God, and 
you're in his presence and that well you you experience all the things that you should experience in that in that situation right well and i think i think the reason why uh, that they kind of vaguely describe what he looks like is because he's so far beyond our ability to comprehend that all we can really do is say what he kind of looks like which is why Ezekiel, for example, will say one kind of sort of like a son of man. Obviously, I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, who kind of looks like a man, who kind of looks like fire, who kind of looks like this, because he's really at a loss of being able to describe what it is exactly that he's saying. And the same is true here for John. All he can really say is what I'm seeing is one who appears to be sitting and one who looks like precious stones. And that's all I can really say, because it is, he is so far beyond us and so utterly different from us that we can't even begin to comprehend what God looks like in himself. Right? I think so. And so when we think about what John does say, and again, this is the ESV, he's got, John sees the one on the throne, has the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. He's going to mention the appearance of an emerald later, when, when, with those precious stones, and I know sometimes there can be some debate about exactly what precious stone we're talking about in some circumstances. Is there anything to those particular stones in this case? Do you think, or is that just sort of the the idea of brilliance? And these are the ones that he he uses to describe it. I really think it's just the value and the brilliance of the stones, because jasper especially is such a weasel word in Greek. It it can mean just about any precious stone. We use it to refer to a very specific stone right. these days, but in the time of the New Testament, it was just kind of like saying a really, you know, a valuable stone, a jasper. Maybe red-ish, maybe, but it could be really anything. Carnelian is more of a red stone, kind of like we tend to think of it, but I really don't think that that's the point here. I think the point is, it's just... He's, he's like stones. He's like precious stones. He's like, we might say... He looks like diamonds or, you know, something like that. Just to express this sense of brilliance, of worth, of desire, you know, because he is beautiful in himself. Yeah. Okay. So we've got this, this image of precious stones. Now around the throne, there is a rainbow. John says okay. that has the appearance of an emerald. Uh, you can disagree with me, but I, I do think the fact that there's a rainbow around the throne, given what we know about the rainbow from the promise made to Noah... That seems to be like maybe there's something to that more than just the idea of brilliance. Uh, but you can disagree with me if you think. No, I, I think I think you're onto something there, and I would agree with you in this case. Just this case. <laughs> just once. Okay. All right. Let it be noted for the record. <laughs> exactly. Um, but the rainbow, even though this is a green rainbow, which we can debate what exactly that means, <laughs> I think that the rainbow is significant because, like you said, of Noah and the promise that was made there. And the reason why, and this is something maybe you can disagree with me on, the reason why I think it's, John says that it has the appearance of an emerald is because that word emerald in the Old Testament very significantly describes one of the stones on the high priest's um, breastplate, you know, with the 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's the stone that has the names of the tribes written on it. And I think that that's significant because not only do you have the promise made to Noah through the rainbow, 
you also have God's faithfulness described through the, the color of the rainbow, that it's the same color as that stone upon which the names of the tribes were written. And so, yeah, I do think that the rainbow in this case is not just to show his beauty or to show his you know, worth. It's also to show his faithfulness and give us a, a kind of symbolic representation of who God is in himself. So, and to try to, to maybe draw that out a little bit farther, with the rainbow being the sign of the promise that God is never going to destroy the world again, according, or through the flood. Through the flood. Right. So, I mean, I would, the, the rainbow is the promise of God's faithfulness, that he is no longer, he is not at enmity with the world. He, he is, you know, the, and when I think about the rainbow, another, I think, part of that aspect is that the bow is pointed toward him, so that, that here, here's, here's what I'm trying to get at if I can draw all these things, things together. God is not at enmity with the world, and he's not at enmity with the world because of the blood that's going to be shed. That's what the priestly ministry in the Old Testament was pointing toward, that the blood the blood is shed for your sins. It's for you whose names are written here on this emerald, and all of that is pointing toward Christ. I don't know, maybe I'm trying to draw too many things together there. Well, I, I mean, I agree with you, there's significance. Uh, yeah. I'm just trying to draw out some of what those significances might be. I think with the rainbow, I, this is the way I want to take the rainbow. I don't want to think of the rainbow the way we normally think of the rainbow, which is just kind of the half circle, because sure. we tend to think of the rainbow just as that half circle. But here it's described as being a round. Right. And I almost wonder if it isn't a full circle. I think it is. Because the word in Greek is actually iris, like the iris of an eye. Right. And so I do think that what we're seeing here is like a full circle, like surrounding the whole throne, like God is in the middle of it kind of a thing. Right. And I think, so with that, it is, again, drawing in all of those illusions with the rainbow that we see on earth, even if we only see half of it. But the whole point is, is that this is God in his faithfulness, God in his promises, God in everything that he has done. Now, he, of course, is going to judge the world. In fact, he will destroy the world and remake it in the book of Revelation. But that, that doesn't negate the fact that he is still faithful to the promises that he has made. Sure. And I, I, I think that, I think that, that works. I, I like that. The connection I, I was trying to make is that with the connection to the priestly ministry, the reason God is faithful is, is because of blood being shed on behalf right. of his people. And that, that's kind of the, the place where I think what you're saying about the emerald particularly, that, that was the further connection I was trying to draw, that it's not sure. just some sort of like, oh, God is so nice, but mm. he is faithful because, as we will see in chapter 5, the lamb has been slain and now lives again. That's his faithfulness in action. And the, the color of the emerald connected mm -hmm. to the priestly garments is maybe a preview of what we're going to see more specifically than in chapter 5. That's kind of where I was trying to draw it. Sure. Sure. And just, just for clarification, too, uh, the connection is Exodus 28, verse 9, although you probably won't be able to see the connection very clearly in English. But um, the, the, the point is, is that that stone upon which the names of Israel have been written is also a sign of God's faithfulness to them. It's like yes. he has written them, he's engraved them in stone, and it's on the breastplate of the priest as he goes to offer sacrifice. So he's always keeping the name of his people before him kind of a thing. Sure. Yeah. 
And so there's there's 12 names written on that stone, right, Pastor Right, Harry? correct. So then perhaps that that can provide us with a, a way forward then when we start seeing who else is around this throne. Mm-hmm. You've got the rainbow with the appearance of the emerald around the throne, and then around the throne are these 24 thrones, and seated on those thrones are 24 elders. So let's let's talk about who these guys are on their thrones. Maybe the number 12 on that emerald stone can help us with why there's 24 elders and who they are. The first question I want to answer though, and maybe we can debate this is what's the relationship, what is the relationship do you think between the rainbow and the thrones? Are they sitting next to one another? So you have God, the rainbow, and then the 24 elders with their thrones. Or do you think that the, you have God, with the rainbow and within the iris, within the rainbow itself, are also the 24 thrones. What do you think? So I've always kind of pictured it as concentric circles, I suppose. So throne, rainbow, and then the next concentric circle are the 24 thrones. That's generally the way I've pictured it. Okay. But you can change my mind if you want. Well, I think you can do that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that whatsoever. I'm I'm just kind of curious. Maybe, maybe, because we aren't given a very clear picture here, um, it's just kind of, you know, giving you all these impressions and details. They're both described as being around the throne. And you'll notice that a little bit later, uh, the living creatures will be described as being in the midst of, or in this case, on each side of, and around the throne. So they're much closer, but they're also around. But the fact that the rainbow and the thrones are described as round, I think could mean that the thrones are actually within the what do you want to say, the radius of the the rainbow itself. And I think the reason I would maybe make that connection, again, you don't have to go this way. I'm just speculating. But the reason why that might be significant is if the the names of Israel were written on the stone of the the breastplate of the high priest, maybe the, the thrones in this sense are seated within that faithful rainbow. You know, I can the, see that they're they're written, so to speak, within the rainbow itself, and the 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 twenty four is significant here because not only is it the twelve tribes of Israel, but you also have twelve representing the fullness of the church, representing Israel and the nations together. Mm. Is yeah. how I would take that. Okay, I, I I appreciate the way that you connect then the uh, emerald with the names written on it. That perhaps then these twenty four, the fullness of God's church, Old and New Testaments, mm-hmm. are there in that emerald in heaven, right there next to to the God that they are worshiping in heaven in this timeless worship. I, I like that. I I think that could fit. So we're we're digging in here in Revelation chapter four with Pastor Zelwyn Heidi. We do need to take a short break, but we will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love.
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, May 22nd. We're studying Revelation chapter 4 with Pastor Zelwyn Heidi. He serves at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. Pastor Heidi, prior to the break, we were talking about these 24 elders. We haven't really talked about their thrones. So they're, they're sitting on thrones. There's one throne in heaven, the throne of God, but now there's these other thrones. What's the significance of, of these 24 elders? And again, we, we talked about that being the Church of God, Old and New Testaments. Why are they sitting on thrones too? Because the saints of God share in the reign of God, I think is the simplest and the best answer. And the, the best way to kind of show this is actually to go to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 19. Uh, where he says very specifically in verse 28, I got to pull it up here real quick. But he, he basically tells the 12 apostles that truly I say to you in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the 24 elders in this sense, the picture of the whole church of God show that we participate in the reign of God. We participate in the glory of God, not in the, in the sense that we become God or any, anything like that, but the fact that God's victory, God's power is also shared with his church. And we see that picture in the thrones of the 24 elders. Do you yeah. want to disagree with that? or No, I... That passage from Matthew 19, I think, is definitely in the background, and even within the context of Revelation, as we've been hearing in these epistles, each time the Lord Jesus makes a promise to the one who conquers, to the one who's victorious. Right. And even in the very last one, to the church in Laodicea, you have a reference to the throne there. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. Now, I, I know, you know, it talks about sitting with Jesus on the throne. Here you've got the 24 thrones, but I think it connects. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, I think the passage from Matthew 19 is, is fantastic, that we participate in this reign of God through faith, right? Uh, and so he, he is the king. We, we are a part of his reign. We sit on these thrones with him. The 24, the elders, the apostles, or the, the tribes of Israel, the apostles, Old New Testament, all here around the throne of God, seated there. Now, we get a description of their accessories. So they're, they're clothed in white garments, and they've got golden crowns on their heads. Talk about the, the things that these 24 are wearing. Well, both of these are pretty clearly, at least in my mind, symbols of victory. Because uh, the, the clothing in the white garments, again, is something we've seen in the letters already. You know, it is a picture of the victory which will be given to his church. It is a, a picture of the church triumphant. And the crowns in this case, I don't know, have you talked about the distinction between crowns and Revelation yet? Not yet. Nope. Okay. There's two kinds of crowns in Revelation. You've got to pay attention to which one it is. Sometimes it's, for the lack of a better way of putting it, it is a wreath crown. Um, it's a, the kind of crown that an athlete wears after he wins a vic after he wins the race, kind of a thing. It was a very common picture within the ancient world. The other kind of crown is a diadem, which is a king's crown, the crown of authority, the crown of rule. Up to this point, the kinds of crowns that we've typically seen in the letters and also here is the wreath, the crown of victory, the, the Stephanos, uh, where we get the name Stephen from, actually. Yeah. Um, and so in this sense, then, 
we have a picture of the church triumphant, the church which has overcome the, the, the turmoils and the tribulations and the trials of the world to sit victoriously with God in heaven and to reign with him as the ones who have overcome. And so I think that's what's happening here. All right, so we've got the white robes, the crowns. This is what the elders are wearing. As John continues to describe what's going on with this throne, mm -hmm. we've got flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder coming forth from the throne. Mm -hmm. That sounds a lot like Mount Sinai to me. Oh, 100%. That's Exodus 19 language all the way. Uh, this is a picture of the presence of God, These this lightning and this these sounds that are being made. The only thing we don't have here is a trumpet, although we did see a trumpet in Revelation chapter 1. So, All right. So then we've got the, the Mount Sinai picture here. And then also before the throne, there are these seven torches of fire, which John says are the seven spirits of God. Now, we've, we've talked about the seven spirits of God before in that opening greeting that John gives. And, and there where, where John says, grace to you and peace, and he says, from the seven spirits who are before his mm -hmm. throne. So that's think what we're seeing here, we talked about the seven spirits really being the Holy Spirit himself, mm -hmm. and the number seven then being the, the fullness of the Spirit. Is that what's happening here? Uh, yeah, I agree 100%. This Fantastic. is, this is the, the Holy Spirit. <laughs> we're, we're agreeing more often than not, Pastor Heidi. What's going on today? I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I might have to come <laughs> up with something kind of wild here just to keep get us back to normal. <laughs> okay, but so the seven spirits, this is the Holy Spirit again. Yes. Tell okay. Yeah. Any, anything to add to that? Well, it's it's just like you said, we have the picture of seven being this the symbolic of completeness, being symbolic of the fullness. Uh the fact that he's described as seven spirits doesn't change the fact that it's just he's a complete spirit, he is the Holy Spirit. I do think it's significant that he's described as being of fire here, uh the same fire which we see at Pentecost. So yeah, absolutely. This is, you know, God the Father seated on the throne. The Holy Spirit is depicted as being in front of him. Don't get hung up on the details. That's not the point here. This just really meant to teach us something about who God is. And in the next chapter, we will see that the Lamb of God then will be on the throne as well. So we have a picture of the Holy Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, depicted in a very symbolic form. So, like I said, don't get hung up on the details and think that, oh, that means the Holy Spirit's at God, at God the Father's feet or something like that. It's really just meant to say, this is the Holy Spirit who is also shining out his light into the whole world. Hmm. Now, also before the throne, and this is where there was, as it were, so it seems like John is trying to describe with words something that's difficult to describe. Mm -hmm. He says it's a sea of glass like crystal. What's the significance here? I... Well, you could either take this as an actual sea, like the way we tend to think of a sea, uh, you know, a big body of water, or you could take this as the sea of the temple, which was the great big bowl uh, for purification. I don't, I don't know if it really makes a difference. I think the more important detail here is the fact that it's described as being like glass, which means that it's perfectly still. Like if you've ever been out on the water when there's not even a, a ripple in it, we know how just absolutely still and glass-like it can appear, which to me says that unlike the sea, which so often in the Old Testament is a thing of fear, which is a thing of, you know, being basically barely able to control, like God has to hold it back so that it doesn't overwhelm the land. 
Um, here it's depicted as being completely still because God's in complete control. So, and, and generally speaking, for the people of God, especially in the Old Testament, the sea is a place of, of chaos and fear. So right. to have the sea then crystal like glass means that, again, the Lord has even the powers of chaos and evil under his control. Yes. Yes, All I right. think so. So, and this just by by way as we as we go through here, we're going to see the the casting down of the crowns. Mm-hmm. I think it was that him, holy, 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 has that line about casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea. Mm-hmm. Here's the here's the scriptural reference for that that line in the hymn that that maybe we we sing. What Trinity Sunday's coming up soon, so yep. if you sing that, here's the reference. All right, so around the throne now, we're still in verse six. On each side of the throne, we've got four living creatures. And you mentioned before the vision that Ezekiel has. Mm-hmm. The four living creatures should take us back to Ezekiel as well. Yes. They're very explicitly described, especially in Ezekiel chapter 1, if I remember correctly. And they are a little bit different here from what they were in Ezekiel. Because in Ezekiel, the living creatures have four faces, um, each one of these. But here they're described as having one face each. And I don't think that that's something that we really need to get hung up on uh, because what we have here is a picture of the cherubim, right? This is the, the throne guardians of God. You might say his most fearsome, his most powerful of all of his angels. Uh, the fact that they're described as being beast-like in many cases uh, should not cause us to fear, but I mean, it is a, it is also a way of describing their great power. They are the ones you have to get through if you want to get to God. If I'm kind of being a little silly about it, but sure. that's what their purpose is, right? They are the ones who are the closest. And we also see the cherubim depicted, for example, in the temple when they are in the Holy of Holies, um, and the, the wings touch above the Ark of God, that sort of thing. That's their purpose. They're meant to be the ones closest to God, the ones who stand immediately around his throne. So, Pastor Heidi, tell me more about these four living creatures, especially with the eyes. They are full of eyes in front and behind. What's going on with the eyes? Well, I think the eyes are also symbolic of their power, the fact that they see all things. I I really do think that's the point of the symbol here. I mean, we don't want to think of them as like being just these horrific-looking creatures that have eyes literally everywhere. I really do think it's the sense that nothing escapes their gaze. Like they are not, um, you know, they're not omniscient in the way that God is omniscient, of course, but they are powerful in the sense that they are ever watchful, that they are ever, they never sleep, so to speak. They are the ones who are always watching, always paying attention because they are the throne guardians of God. All right. So, and then there's, there's four of them. Is, mm-hmm. I think this is the first time we've seen the number four in the book of Revelation. Why four? Yeah, four is a good question, isn't it? Um, well, I mean, I can tell you what I think. I, I, four, I think, four corners of the earth. So, you know, kind of they're going to—and and thinking with Ezekiel, you know, they can move in any direction, and so, like, there's no no place where they can't go, basically. Right. The the four—yeah, I think that's probably the sense. So in— it's another way of expressing completeness, I would imagine, or just four in the sense of the four directions, like all around kind of thing, because there's yeah. four sides to the throne, so to speak, and so they are on every side, I think would be the, the way of taking it. 
Four is not so, a number that comes up all that often in Revelation, though. So no, right, right. And again, I generally four I associate with those four directions of the earth, and so they're mm-hmm. they're able to go and 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 again by with you know the throne of God. Then right, especially when you think about Ezekiel, the the ability for him to move, so mm-hmm. he's not absent in, mm-hmm. in that sense. So okay, four living creatures. What about the particular animals' appearances? You've got a lion, an ox. A face of a man and an eagle in flight. Is there significant to those particular four well, images? The four gospels, obviously. Well, I know that that's been. I mean, I know that there is there is some of that, and especially when you look at Ezekiel, you have that connection to the four gospels. Right. But is there is there something to these four particular animals and then the man? Well, I think I think the the best way to understand it is probably yeah. Like the lion, for example, being symbolic of strength, but you also do have creatures from kind of all aspects of God's creation. You have, you know, the the oxen, you have the eagle in the sky, that sort of thing. So I I think it is symbolic of their their power, but it's also some, I think this might be another case of where John is just trying to do the best that he can. Sure. Sure. To describe something that can't really be described. Sure. And, yeah. Well, I was kind of, you know, like lion, wild animal, ox, domesticated animal, mm-hmm. obviously the man, eagle, flying animal. Again, something like you've got a wide spectrum of creation represented here. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Again, I'm not sure. I think John is literally seeing these things, mm-hmm. um, but I don't know if there's significance beyond that. So. And, and yeah, I mean, can you imagine trying to explain it like with Ezekiel where they have each of these four phases? So it's right. just kind of... Right. Right. Okay. So we've got the four living creatures. What about the six wings? That's the last detail, I think, that in terms of their appearance. Well, the the seraphim in in Isaiah six um, are described as having six wings. You know, with two that they fly, with two they cover their face, with two they cover their feet, with two they flew. So I think the the six here would just be again symbolic of their ability to move wherever they please. You know, they are limitless in their power. And uh, maybe with some of these wings, they're also, you know, veiling themselves to some degree, the way that the seraphim did in Isaiah 6. It's it's not really specified very clearly. And I think it's just these fantastic creatures, I think the main thing to take away from them is the fact of their great power, their watchfulness, you know, the, and the fact that they're also singing a song of worship which I think is really the the central focus of this part of the book. All right, so we've got the four living creatures around the throne, one on each side. Now, what are they doing? That's where John takes us at the end of verse 8, and this is really where we start to get, I think, into some familiar territory. Mm -hmm. So day and night, they never cease to say. So you were talking about the timeless nature of this worship. Here we've got day and night. They're always saying or singing evermore praising you and saying, Pastor Heidi, Maybe. holy, 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 and we're actually singing it? So mm-hmm. so take us into this song. I, I mean, I think we should understand it as a song, even though it says saying. Well, and it, yeah, I, I think it's kind of a both and kind of thing, speaking and singing. But the first part of it, very clearly, is a reference to Isaiah 6, yeah. the song of the seraphim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Um, but in the second half of it, we have a echo of what we've already heard in the book of Revelation, who was and is and is to come, 
a sit, which is a way of saying God's control, God's timelessness, you know, who God is, the fact that he is the one who always exists, who always has existed, and who always will exist, that he is above his creation. So the fact that the cherubim here, the living creatures, are singing, you know, about who God is means that God is worthy of our worship and our praise simply because he is God. You know, I think sometimes, and maybe I'm overstating this a little bit, but sometimes we might fall into a trap where we only want to worship God for what he's done, right? We, we worship him rightly for giving us Jesus. We worship him rightly for redeeming us. And that's good. We should do that. But God also deserves to be worshiped simply because of who he is. He is the Lord God Almighty. He is thrice holy. He is the one who was and is and is to come. And he is the one who's created all things. So yeah, I mean, when we get to heaven to, to worship him around his throne, we will be adoring him simply because he is the everlasting God, the Lord God Almighty. Yeah, and I think it is significant that the worship of God, as John records it, does start with that. We will get to the worship of God for what he has done, and it, those things are, are intimately connected, who God mm -hmm. is, what he's done. But you're right, the worship of God begins simply for the fact that he is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. He, that is who he is, and so he is worthy of this worship that he is receiving day and night. It never stops. This is the worship that God receives this, again, is the heavenly perspective that John is giving in the book of Revelation that he is seeing there, having been lifted up into the throne room of God. So, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, John continues to describe this heavenly worship in verse 9. So, we've got the living creatures, and they're giving glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne— the 24 elders are falling down and they're worshiping and they're casting down their their golden or their crowns excuse me so and they they are golden we know that from before talk about just the before we get into the words that they're saying again just the scene of this worship and the posture of worship that we see especially from the the elders well the elders i think are really significant because yes they're seated on thrones you know they're sharing in the reign of god but they too are engaged in worship and I don't want to, I don't think the point here is we shouldn't think of this as sometimes they're seated, sometimes they're falling down. Because really, if we get hung up on details like this, we're going to miss the point of what John is seeing. Because remember, the angels are always saying, holy, holy, holy. So does that mean that they're always falling down? No, the point is, is that they too are engaged in a perpetual worship, that they too are falling down. They are recognizing that he is the Lord, that he is worthy of this worship. And they also cast their crowns before the throne, casting down their golden th uh, crowns before the throne, as, as he said, yeah. um, because they're basically giving back to God what he has given to them. And I think that's something significant also for our understanding of worship, that we give back to the Lord what he has first given to us, that we are saying back to him the words that he has given, that we offer back to him the praise and the, the worship which he is due. You know, that is a very much, that's a significant part of the worship of God. But at the same time, it's also significant that they're willing to cast down these thrones because as we'll see much later in the book of Revelation in chapter nine with the description of the demons uh, who have crowns, 
they refuse to give up their crowns. They want to hold on to them. They want to basically be in control. But the elders here are willing to say, no, even though we share in the worship of God, we only have this authority because of you, and we give it back to you in worship of you. Yeah, I really appreciate that, the picture of worship that you're drawing there, that we give back to God what He has first given to us. I think it's a fantastic understanding, and I think you certainly see that in the way that our divine service works, that God gives to us, we give back to Him precisely what He has given. That is the the nature of our worship, that's the nature of the worship here in heaven. I want to make sure we get to that last bit of the the song that is recorded here, and it seems that as John is, is seeing this heavenly vision, it's almost like he's hearing one stanza of the song at a time. So it started with worship of God for who He is, holy, holy, holy. And then in verse 11, now there is going to be worship based on what God has done. This is the song that he hears in verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So talk about the worship God receives here in in this last verse of our text for today. Yeah, this, this worship is in recognition that He is the Creator, that all things exist only because of Him. I would maybe even call this the old song. And the only reason I say that is because you're going to see very clearly in chapter 5, verse 9, where it says they sang a new song when they sing about what Jesus has now done. This old song is the song that has always been, and always will be for that matter, the fact that we are worshiping God for what he did in creating all things, in bringing into existence the world. But the fact that he created all things now gives way in chapter 5, which again we'll see in in a little while, to the fact that Jesus has redeemed all things. And the fact that he has redeemed all things is in a sense greater than the fact that he created all things. But that's kind of getting ahead of it. The point is here, God is worthy of worship for what he has done because he created all things very good and all things exist because of him. That in itself is also something that we should give him glory for. Mm. Yeah, and so he re- he is receiving this glory and worship in heaven, and we then participate in that worship of God here on earth. So let's let's talk about a little bit about how this this worship of heaven influences our worship that happens here on earth. Got about four minutes here, Pastor Heidi, and there's any number of things that we could talk about. But you you did start us off by saying, "Here's the heavenly perspective." Mm-hmm. So let's talk about how that influences our earthly perspective. Talk about how these things show up in our our worship here on Earth. Sure. Well, I think the the first thing to note with earthly worship, uh, which is something that you know happens Sunday or whatever time we gather together to worship Him is often described in the Bible as being a foretaste. It is, it's not the main meal in that sense. It's not the feast itself. We are waiting for the feast, which of course is the end of the book of Revelation, but it is like the, the appetizers. It's a little, a little tiny taste of what will be ours in heaven. And what we're seeing here in chapter four is is a picture of the feast itself, that the angels are engaged in this constant worship. The elders, and the, the as a picture of the whole church, are also engaged in that constant worship, giving glory to God for what he has done and, you know, magnifying him because of simply who he is. And so the way that should inform our earthly worship then is that 
even though we are waiting for what is to come, we do see little glimpses of it in what we are doing here on earth. And that's why I think borrowing some of these things like the holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, or even, you know, the worthy are you, our Lord and God, and incorporating them in our worship the way that we often do is helpful because it shows us that the things we are doing now will eventually give way to what is going to go on forever, right? Yeah, and, and that then strengthens us in the midst of, again, the context of persecution that John is writing in, that strengthens us to know that like, we know the song that we're going to be singing for all eternity, and we can start singing it even now because the victory is is that sure, it's that secure. And even when it doesn't look like we're living in that sort of conquering victory of our Lord, yet we are, because we know the one who has promised it, the one who is and who, who was and who is to come, he has won this victory. It's that sure. And so we can start singing those songs even now. I mentioned we'll talk more about this in chapter five too, because the song is just going to keep on being sung and we continue to sing it. Final thoughts, help us to, to conclude today, Pastor Heidi, with just about a minute here. Well, and I, I really do think that studying the book of Revelation is something that's you know, well worth our time. And yeah, we had to kind of rush through this chapter a little bit because, you know, there's only so much you can talk about in an hour. But the point, I think, is clear in that what we see here is a great comfort, especially to suffering saints, because from the perspective of heaven, we have a God who is seated. You know, he is not anxious and worried. We have a God who is in control. We have a God who is being constantly worshipped for who he is. And this same God is the God who is on our side. And when we join in his worship here on earth, you know, we are looking forward to what he will do for us, especially because he has sent us his son to redeem us and to make us his own. So yeah, we should hold on to this vision because God is faithful to his promises and God is already victorious. Pastor Zelwyn Heidi is pastor at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. He's also one of the hosts of the podcast, A Word Fitly Spoken. He has been helping us today to study Revelation chapter 4. Pastor Heidi, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about this heavenly throne room vision in Revelation chapter 4, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. <laughs>